On Tuesday, March 26th of 2018, the tranquil scenery of Northern California's Highway 1 in Mendocino County was eclipsed by a disturbing scene. As a tourist was passing by, soaking in the views from 100 feet above the waves crashing below, he noticed something out of place. From the rocks below, the undercarriage of a GMC Yukon was looking up at him. At first, the undercarriage blended in with the dark rocks, but once he registered what he was actually looking at, he immediately called 911, and what authorities found inside the Yukon was a sinister nightmare. This is the story of the Hart family. Jennifer and Sarah Hart were a couple out of South Dakota. Jennifer Jean Hart was born on June 4, 1979. She grew up in Huron, South Dakota, home to the South Dakota State Fair and the eighth most populous city in South Dakota with less than 15,000 people. Sarah Margaret Gangler was born April 8th of 1979. She grew up right outside of Big Stone City, South Dakota, which is right up in the northeast corner of South Dakota. The population there is quite small, with only between four and 500 people. They both had a pretty unremarkable childhood from what I could find. They were both the oldest of their siblings and were part of a seemingly nice family. Sarah's dad worked at a hardware store while her mom worked at a cheese factory. Sarah was reserved and somewhat shy, and Jen was quite the opposite. She was outgoing, funny, confident, and sometimes described as bold, brash, and abrasive. When she was growing up, she played the trumpet and played boys' baseball instead of girls' softball. Her parents split when she was 12. When Jen was 14, she went to live with her dad after she got into an argument with her mom. But while she was living with her dad, she started disobeying and breaking the rules, so she was sent back to live with her mom. So it's safe to say her childhood was a little more remarkable than Sarah's. However, neither of them seemed to let it hold them back from furthering their education and their future. After high school, Sarah attended the University of Minnesota Twin Cities before transferring to Northern State University in Aberdeen, South Dakota. This is where she would meet Jen Hart. Both of them were studying elementary education at the time. Sarah would end up graduating from Northern State University, but Jen didn't finish. In 2004, they moved to Alexandria, Minnesota, a predominantly white town. In April of the following year, they became licensed to accept foster children, and at this time, Sarah changed her last name to Hart because same-sex marriage was not yet legal in every state. Their first placement with a foster child was soon after getting licensed. She was a 15-year-old girl that we will call Alice to keep her identity protected. Alice admitted that she could be a difficult kid. Her biological mom was young, alone, and overwhelmed, so she placed Alice into the foster care system. Alice had been in the system in the past because of chronic truancy, so this complete lack of stability would undoubtedly be traumatic for a young girl. In an interview with the Seattle Times, Alice recalled that the first six months of her placement with Jen and Sarah were positive. They would go camping, they would go to events, and do fun activities together. At the time, Jen and Sarah were working for a department store in a strip mall. They brought Alice in one day to give her a makeover and teach her how to apply makeup. But Alice was a tomboy, and it made her very uncomfortable. 
So Jen and Sarah stood by with their arms crossed as their coworker applied makeup on Alice, and they appeared to be frustrated, apologizing that Alice was being difficult. While Alice wasn't around, they vented to the coworker that she was a problem child who was often caught eating out of the trash, something Alice contested that she has never done. But besides that, life behind closed doors wasn't all that bad. She admitted that the hearts were strict, but also realized that maybe they were just trying to keep her safe and give her that stability that she so desperately needed. She didn't get to do a lot on her own as far as visit with friends or do anything outside of activities that involved Jen and Sarah. But when asked if she wanted to stay there until she was 18, she said yes. In February of 2006, the hearts found out that they would be eligible to adopt three kids out of Texas, Abigail, Hannah, and Marcus. The Hearts were so excited, and Alice was as well. They told her she was going to be a big sister and that she would need to be a good influence on the new kids. And then Jen and Sarah went to Texas for a week to meet the kids before the adoption process could be finalized. When they came back, they brought pictures of the kids to show Alice, and she was so excited. And then a week before the kids were scheduled to actually move to Minnesota and finalize the adoption, Jen and Sarah took Alice to see her therapist. They drove her to the office and dropped her off, and during the appointment, the therapist told Alice that Jen and Sarah would not be coming back to get her, that she would be going to a new home immediately following her therapy appointment. She was told it wasn't her fault, that the hearts were just not a good fit. After the appointment, a brand new couple picked her up and brought her to their home where all of her stuff was. They had literally moved all of her stuff out and into this new place behind her back while she was at this appointment. It took a lot of work to process that abandonment, but Alice now has kids of her own and works with disabled children. She's still very close with the foster parents that took her in after Jen and Sarah abandoned her and has since learned forgiveness. After the first night with three new kids, Jen made a Facebook post recounting the events of their first night. She wrote that Abigail urinated everywhere and split her chin open by falling down the stairs. Hannah smeared feces on the wall and then gorged herself with food until she needed the Heimlich, resulting in episodes of projectile vomiting. Marcus, she said, hit his head on a closet wall and then in multiple voices claimed to be possessed by demons. Yet she and Sarah were committed to healing kids over time. She wrote, if not us, who? Jen was very active on social media, often sharing intimate and carefully curated photos with long storytelling captions. Viewers felt the love from within their home emanating from her posts. It seemed like Jen and Sarah were making a very real difference in these kids' lives, so they decided to open their home to even more children. In 2006, a judge in Harris County, Texas, ordered that the parental rights of four kids, Devante, Jeremiah, Sierra, and a fourth child, to be terminated. So these children were sent to live with their aunt, Priscilla. However, in December of that year, a caseworker made an unexpected visit to check on the kids and found that they were in the temporary care of the biological mom. Apparently, she was just visiting the kids while the aunt was at work, but this violated the conditions of the children's care, so they were removed from the aunt's home and placed into the system. The following year, in May of 2007, Priscilla filed a petition to adopt the four kids, but her petition was denied. She tried to petition for a new trial, but again was denied. 
Around this same time, Hannah, who was one of the original three children adopted by the Hearts, made an allegation at school about being hit at home. She had some bruises on her that she showed her teacher, and it was also reported that Hannah and Abigail were both caught eating out of the trash and stealing food from their classmates. So CPS was called and they investigated, but determined that there wasn't enough evidence to form a case against Jen and Sarah. Jen's rebuttal was always that the kids had deficits and issues with food due to their living conditions prior to being adopted. The school actually called CPS multiple times, but nothing was ever done. The kids were never removed from the home, so the teachers eventually stopped calling because they became worried about the repercussions the kids could be facing at home anytime CPS was called. In 2008, Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra were adopted by Jen and Sarah, moving from Texas to Minnesota. On November 15th of 2010, Abigail told her teachers that her mom gave her an owie on her tummy. When she showed her teacher, she was bruised from her sternum down to her belly button. She told them that a penny had fallen out of her pocket, and her mom assumed that she stole it, so she was beaten as punishment. When police went to the home, Abigail told the police that it was Jen who did it, but Sarah ultimately took the fall and claimed that it was her who inflicted the punishment. She told police that she lost her temper, took Abigail to the bathroom, bent her over the edge of the bathtub, and spanked her. She also admitted that she may have gotten a little out of control. She pleaded guilty to domestic assault and received one year of probation along with community service, but she never had to serve any jail time, and her kids were never removed from her care. And it's pretty astonishing to see the parallel between how Priscilla was treated in Texas, her own nieces and nephew were removed from her care simply because their biological mom made an unexpected visit, while one of those children was physically abused with evidence by her adoptive mother, and nothing was done to protect those children. After this incident, the Hearts took the kids out of public school and started homeschooling them. They removed themselves from the realm of protection from any outside agencies and disguised it with the intent to provide them a more wholesome, transformational lifestyle. They put an emphasis on life skills like homesteading and building with tools. They went to music festivals where they were surrounded by music, yoga, dancing, and costumes. In 2013, they moved from Minnesota to Portland and became a fixture within that community. Sarah found a job at a local Kohl's while Jen stayed at home to take care of the kids. Sarah often worked really long hours, so Jen would load up the kids in their Yukon XL and take them cross-country to music festivals. During one of those trips, they were at the Beloved Festival when Devante went up on stage and hugged one of the musicians. It was captured on video and it circulated like crazy. People loved seeing this image of two white lesbian women caring for six black children and showing them what appeared to be a second chance at life. When she would post about the kids on Facebook, they garnered more and more attention, so much so that it became a very regular thing posting on Facebook. Many of these posts were written in a way to provoke a response, and Jen seemed to feed off of the engagement she got on each post. For example, this is a post from November 5th, 2013, and pictured is Sierra holding a handful of leeks. The caption reads, checking out at the grocery store, cashier looking befuddled. What is this? 
Kid one, big grin. Those are leaks. Cashier continues ringing. I've never seen someone buy so many vegetables. Kid two, well, we are vegetarians. Vegetables are delicious. Cashier, but your mom didn't even get any snacks for you. Me biting my tongue. Kid one to kid two, he must not have seen the kale. Kale for the win. In another post, she wrote, quote, Sometimes we wake up lakeside in the heart of the Cascades and have chocolate cream pie for breakfast because life. And in another post, Jen is describing this mission that they're on for the month, doing one hike every single day. So this post says, quote, Day three, 30 hikes, 30 days, Malala River State Park. Him, would it be okay if we stopped at the top of this hill to listen to the frogs croak while the sun sets? Me, sure. Him, sitting in the mud, watching the sunset. Do you ever think society overcomplicates life? There's so much busyness, technology, obsession, and worrying about crossing things off a to-do list while forgetting what it's like to be. Her, be what? Him, alive. Her, Sunsets make you think about this stuff, huh? Him. All the time, don't you? Her. I was thinking about how we were going to see where we were going now that it's dark and we have to hike back. Him. Mom has a flashlight on her iPhone. Her. Oh, now you want technology. Him. It's all about finding the balance. Me. I think about this stuff all the time. Also, my phone is in the Yukon. I thought you guys had the flashlights in your pack. Her. Well, this should be fun. Guess we'll see how alive we feel now. And before I read you this last post, I just think it's so interesting how performative she writes these events as if they actually happened. I don't really believe that they happened exactly how she writes about them. I think she's over-exaggerating for dramatic effect. And you'll see that in this next post. And all of these posts will be on our Instagram. So you can actually see them for yourselves by going to Instagram and our page is mama.mysterypodcast. But this one says, woman glances at the books in his hand. I don't think your mom and dad would approve of those. In parentheses, she writes, I'm standing right there, by the way, and one of the books he's holding is Another Bullshit Night in Suck City. Son one smiles. Well, my mom is right here, and she is fine with me reading whatever I want. There's no such thing as a banned book at our house. Me resisting the urge for a high five. Yep, that's true. Woman, well, I never. They are too young to be exposed to adult literature. Thank goodness we have a president fighting this liberal mentality, ruining our children. There are banned books and burned books for a reason. Ramble, ramble, ramble. And then family with a bunch of emojis. Son too. Oh man, censorship. Sigh. It's not porn. We're all teenagers. It's actually a pretty good read. It's a memoir. We don't have to get that today because we already have it at home. I'm thankful for having the freedom to read all kinds of subject matter, looks at me with a small grin. You'd think this would be an isolated type of experience, but similar encounters happen quite often. People assume some of the kids are a lot younger than they are because of their smaller stature. This apparently gives them an all-access pass to parent our children. I attribute the kids' love for reading to the fact that they've had the freedom to choose their interests and seek knowledge and entertainment that suits them. End quote. On June 28th of 2013, the Hart family was staying with friends when they ordered pizza. 
As they gave out pieces of pizza to the kids, the friends were alarmed that each kid only got one very, very thin slice of pizza for dinner. Then in the middle of the night, one of the kids snuck down to the kitchen and ate more pizza. When Jen found out about it, she woke up little Sierra out of her sleep by grabbing her arm and dragging her to the bathroom where she spanked her. Then she made all of the kids lay on an air mattress with their arms by their sides and eye masks covering their eyes for five hours as punishment. The friends confronted Jen, telling her that she was being a little too harsh, but she disagreed. She saw nothing wrong with the way that she was parenting her children. The friends ended up calling CPS and reporting the incident, and it was also reported that Jen does this thing for her Facebook page where the kids pose and are made to look like one big happy family, but after the photo, they go back to looking lifeless. She also claimed that the kids were scared to death of Jen. CPS went to the Hart home to investigate. They interviewed each kid separately, but inside the home. Each kid gave nearly identical rehearsed responses, and it's really a shame that they weren't taken out of the home or further away from Jen where the barriers maybe could have been lowered. When they questioned Jen, she argued that many just don't understand her parenting style, but that the only thing she does when they're in trouble is talk to them and then make them meditate for five minutes. A stark contrast to what the friends witnessed with their own eyes. And if she was willing to behave like that in front of friends, how was she treating the kids when nobody was watching? As part of the CPS investigation, Oregon Child Welfare Services had all six kids assessed by a doctor. Five of the six kids were so small, their weight and height wasn't even listed in the growth chart for kids their age. They were all underweight and under their proposed height, despite half of them not being biologically related to the other half. In November 2014, the family attended a protest in Portland over the shooting of Michael Brown, a teen from Ferguson, Missouri, which is a suburb of St. Louis. Devante had his free hugs sign on display and offered to hug an officer with the Portland Police Department who was there to monitor the event. The hug was photographed and the picture went viral. And that picture will also be on our Instagram if you'd like to see it for yourself. But Alex Reidlinger was there and actually witnessed the moment. He told Glamour Magazine, quote, Every picture I've seen crops out the circus of photographers that surrounded these two. Devante was crying before approaching the officer while he was talking to his guardian, presumably because he was terrified. And this brings the question of coercion to my mind, end quote. After this picture went viral, stories about the Hart family began to circulate and hit major news media outlets who painted this picture of a big, happy family just defying all the odds. I mean, think about it. You have two white lesbian women adopting these six black kids. They are essentially these heroes, you know, that they're projecting themselves to be. But Jen and Sarah claimed that they were receiving death threats and put under an insurmountable mound of pressure. Jen took a break from posting on Facebook, but returned six months later, announcing that they moved to Woodland, Washington. This new home in Woodland would be their last. It was slightly more secluded, offering them land to house their gardens and their chickens. Their closest neighbors were Dana and Bruce DeCab, who couldn't quite see the house, but could see them coming and going. 
She observed Devante often outside doing hard labor around the yard with no help, despite having perfectly capable siblings. In the summer of 2017, the DeCabs were woken in the middle of the night by someone banging on their front door. It was Hannah. The moment they opened the door, she rushed inside, begging them to hide her and revealing, quote, they whip us with a belt, end quote. Hannah ran upstairs to the master bedroom and hid, begging the DeCabs to help them. She said, you've got to help. Please protect me. Don't make me go back. They are racist. They abuse us. Hannah had twigs in her hair because she had jumped from the second story window of their home. It wasn't long before Jen and Sarah, along with some of Hannah's siblings, appeared at the front door looking for Hannah. When they opened the door, Jen and Sarah barged in and looked for Hannah, finally finding her between the bed and the dresser. They ordered Hannah downstairs, and Jen told her to apologize to the, to the decabs and explain that she just had a really bad week. And then they left. The next morning, Dana was about to call CPS, but her doorbell rang. The entire Hart family was there. Jen explained to Dana that they were adopted and came from a very rough life prior to being adopted, explaining away their behavior. Then Hannah handed Dana a handwritten letter that says, Dear Dana and Bruce, I stopped this morning because I feel awful about disturbing your peace and worrying you in the middle of the night. I was very frustrated with my brother and didn't handle things very maturely, and I'm sorry for telling lies to get attention. I'm working on being more honest and finding better ways to communicate my frustrations. I've been sad about two of our cats dying recently, so I was just very sad and frustrated last night. Thank you for being kind, Hannah, end quote. Dana then asked if she could have a moment alone with Hannah, but Jen declined, saying, no, we do everything as a family. After this, Dana still felt compelled to call CPS, but her husband told her to just stay out of it and essentially not stir the pot. But when Dana told her dad, he couldn't let it go. He called 911 himself to report what had happened and told the operator that he had a very bad feeling about what was going on at the Hart home. So someone at the sheriff's office called Dana to ask for her version of events she told them what happened, but also added that the kids are never outside, but they told her, well, it's not illegal to keep kids inside. And then after that, there was no follow-up. Just a quick little side note. I understand Dana's husband, Bruce, not wanting to get involved, not wanting to stir the pot. And I feel like that's a very common mentality, but when there are children involved and you think they might be at risk, stir the fucking pot. On March 15th, 2018, Devante noticed that Bruce was outside working on his truck. So Devante walked up to him and asked him if he had any bread he could have. They didn't have any bread, but he offered tortillas and Devante took the tortillas. Then he returned a couple days later asking for more food, but begged them not to tell his mothers. Then he came back the next day, this time with a list of requests. Non-perishables and cured meats were on the list. He also requested that they place the food by the fence so that the moms wouldn't see it. The more Devante came over to the decabs, the more he revealed about their living situation. He admitted that everything Hannah told them was true, but that Jen made them say otherwise to appease them and keep CPS at bay. By March 23rd, Devante had been to their house 10 times in seven days. So with documented evidence, she called CPS again to file a report. These kids were not being fed. 
This time, they actually made it out to the Hart home and watched as Jen drove the Yukon into the driveway and go inside. So they rang the doorbell, but nobody answered. The windows were all blocked with drapes or blinds. They knew people were home, but they were just not coming to the door. And then 10 hours later, the hearts fled. On March 24th, Sarah didn't show up for her shift at Kohl's. She sent a text to her coworker Cheryl at 3 a.m. saying she wasn't feeling well and may even need to go to the doctor. The next day, she didn't show up, but also didn't let anyone know that she wouldn't be coming into work. When Cheryl texted her, Sarah never responded. The following day, March 26th, Cheryl called 911 to request a welfare check on Sarah because it was so out of character for her to just not show up to her shift. About 10 minutes later, Cheryl received a follow-up call from an officer who asked her how many kids Sarah had and if Cheryl was aware that Jen and Sarah didn't feed their children. Well, this blindsided Cheryl. Everything she knew and saw completely contradicted any theories that those children were abused. She told the officer why she was calling originally for a welfare check, and he responded that the Department of Health and Human Services was already there, but the house was empty, that they had packed up and left. A surveillance camera in a Fort Bragg Safeway captured Jen paying $20.08 in cash for groceries, which included bananas, carrots, Chef Boyardee beef ravioli, wheat bread, cereal bars, and saltines. She was alone and maybe 25 pounds heavier than friends had ever seen her. Fort Bragg sits on the coast of California, and Highway 1 runs right down the center of it. Just 25 minutes from that Safeway is where the Yukon was found, crashed among the rocks below a 100-foot cliff. Inside the Yukon, investigators found Jen, Sarah, Marcus, Jeremiah, and Abigail. But Devante, Sierra, and Hannah were still missing. Twelve days later, Sierra's remains washed up on the beach near the incident. A preliminary autopsy showed that Jen had a .102 blood alcohol content, which is over the legal limit. Jen rarely drank. Sarah had significant amounts of Benadryl in her system, literally the equivalent of taking 42 25-milligram pills. The kids also had high levels as well, with Marcus having the equivalent of having taken 19 pills. Jen didn't have any in her system. At the scene of the crash, there were no skid marks indicating brakes being used. The seatbelts weren't used, even though they were sticklers about using their seatbelts. And the speedometer was stuck at 90 miles per hour. Investigators also determined that Jennifer was, was the one driving the vehicle. California Highway Patrol also analyzed the vehicle's black box and found that the vehicle had come to a complete stop at the gravel lot about 75 feet from the edge of the cliff. It then accelerated off the cliff without the brakes ever being applied. Eventually, a little shoe washed up on the shore with a pair of blue jeans. On the tag of the jeans was a little H in permanent marker, likely for Hannah. Inside the boot was a sock and inside the sock were bones from a foot. DNA testing was performed on the remains, and it matched Hannah. But to this day, Devante has not been found. Digital forensics revealed that Sarah was on her phone in the hours prior to the crash. She was searching, quote, how to overdose on Benadryl, 
and also searched how much Benadryl would be needed to kill someone of her weight. She also searched if dying by drowning or hypothermia would be painful. She also searched if there were any no-kill shelters in the area for their dog. Their dog was never found and no shelters reported accepting the dog, so it's possible that the dog was in the car with them. But I want to point out just what we're probably all thinking, which is that you literally went to the extent of looking for a no-kill shelter for your dog, but you kept all your six children in the car knowing that they were about to die. It's impossible to get into the frame of mind of a family annihilator, let alone two of them. I am inclined to believe that Jen was the abuser in this situation and that Sarah was a battered wife who had suffered so much abuse she fell victim to the same fate as the children. However, I do find myself getting frustrated at the Google searches she made and her inability to stand up to Jen and put a stop to what was going on. Did they decide to do this together? Did Jen convince Sarah to go off the cliff? I have to wonder if that's why she took all the Benadryl, because she knew what was about to happen and wanted to be knocked out before she died. Did they consider themselves to be martyrs, saving themselves from, and the kids, from an unforgiving, racially motivated society? Or was Jen just a narcissist who found herself losing control of her situation after three separate states were now on her case? I'm inclined to believe the latter. It's my opinion that Jen saw no way out. She'd been in complete control for years, but as she lost her grip, her last act of control was putting her foot on the accelerator and driving her Yukon off that cliff with her entire family inside. But the ultimate victims here are those six sweet children. Marcus was 19. Hannah was 16. Devante was 15. Jeremiah was 14. Abigail was 14. And Sierra was 12. This story brings to light a very serious issue within the foster and adoption programs. And we see it all too often. And of course, the negative stories get the most press. They outweigh any of the positive stories. And recently, a documentary came out and went viral on the curious case of Natalia Grace. Um, I have watched it. I might do a story on it at some point. But basically, this girl was adopted into this family, and it was alleged that she lied about her age, claiming she was younger than she actually was because she was a little person, so her age was a little more ambiguous. Um, anyway, it's a wild and unhinged documentary. But I think that this one really shocked so many people, the story of the Hart family, because from the outside looking in, they appeared to be this picture-perfect family just defying all the odds and giving these kids a second chance at life, taking them to all these beautiful, scenic places, really getting them in touch with their their souls and their, their own spirit, I guess. And from the outside looking in, it really appeared that way. But even their friends, their friends that saw them regularly in person, they were shocked when this happened. And so it certainly proves the argument that you really never know what goes on behind closed doors and you cannot trust everything you see on social media. But also to expand on that, you see quite often, especially in today's culture, these parents who exploit their children for engagement and they get some sort of validation out of the likes and the comments and the more engagement they get, the more 
proud or accomplished they feel as parents with these kids. And you often see the kids ultimately be the ones who suffer in the end because they didn't, you know, consent to this type of stuff being shown all over Facebook or social media. Like, for example, the first night that they were home, do you think they would have wanted everyone to hear a story about them urinating all over the place or spreading their feces on the walls or saying that they were possessed by demons? I mean, these are very private and personal things for these kids, I doubt that they would have consented to letting everyone know that that's what was alleged to have happened that first night. Um, but also, I mean, everything was so exaggerated that a lot of what Jen was posting wasn't even the truth. But ultimately, I think what gets me the most fired up about this case is the complete failure of our system to protect our children, which is the tale as old as time. They were in a home, a perfectly capable home of their aunt in Texas. And because the biological mom showed up unannounced and essentially got caught there, these kids were then removed from that home and placed into the system with strangers. I just don't understand how that could have benefited it, benefited them more than being placed with their aunt. I feel like that was a very harsh punishment to the aunt who was really wanting to give these kids the best opportunity to stay within the family, which isn't that the ultimate goal usually? I mean, unless the unless the home that they are living in is abusive, obviously that's a different story, but like you can't control who comes and shows up at the house or just wants to visit. And I don't know if that was stipulated in their parenting contract or in the conditions of the foster you know, situation that they were under with their aunt. But it just seems really like a harsh move to take these kids out of their aunt's house and place them into the system that we know is broken, a system we know is broken. And if that hadn't happened, if those kids were never removed from their aunt's care, then we wouldn't be telling this story today. But it didn't take just one failure. It took failure after failure after failure. And I think what breaks my heart the most about this story is that these six kids never in their short life had a chance to experience what stability, security, and unconditional love was supposed to feel like. And I think that's the ultimate like heartbreaking fact about this story. The whole thing is heartbreaking, but I do want to know your thoughts. So if you have comments on this case, um, you can head over to our Instagram. You can leave it in a review. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review. Um, that help our, helps our show get seen. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate you being here. We'll be back next week. Austin will be joining me for that one. I'm sure he's just taking a break today because um, we had a little event last night and he is so tired. And so it's really better off that I did this one by myself, but I promise I'll be back until next week. Mama mystery out. Bye.